Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And I'm delighted to be joined back on the podcast today by a guest we've had before quite a while ago, but someone who's well known um, in this country, well loved. And it is, of course, Grace Dias. Grace, how are you? Good. Yeah, really good. Nice to hear I'm loved. That's always oh, a nice way to start things. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And for those who don't know Grace, Grace is an artist, an activist, a writer, a director, a producer and performer who um, lives between, as she describes herself, the South Inner City and Inish Ear on the Aran Islands, mm. um, has made films, plays, live performances, um, and most cur- current work is the um, a Mary Magdalene Experience, which is a new film installation. Grace, do you want to tell us a little bit about that briefly? Yeah, so it was a commission for Rural Red Gallery in Talla. So they commissioned myself, Amanda Coogan, Alice Marr, Rachel Fallon and Jesse Jones to do some kind of active research into the figure of Mary Magdalene. And we did it over four years with COVID in the middle. So we ended up becoming a little kind of art coven on Zoom, meeting up every week and sharing our ideas and stuff. Um, Sounds great. And my piece really looks at like who, like who was Mary Magdalene and what mm. was the myth that was kind of spun about her and why, you know. So the whole thing is straight away it comes into your head that she was a prostitute or a sex worker and, you know, that she was mad, all these different things and there's all these other little theories. So it was kind of really trying to dissect that and look at like where did those stories come from and why because the most accurate kind of historical things that we have is the gospel of mary um which was her own lived experience that she recounted to a kind of a scribe and it's very different to the story that was kind of told about her in the bible and i guess the reason it's believed that the early church did that was so that women wouldn't have spiritual authority because she was really actually very crucial in the Jesus cult. They were kind of working side by side. People said they were married or she had his baby. That I feel like that's another way of just making her irrelevant, you know, that she was some connection to a man. But actually she was a big part of the, the, the Jesus cult. And um, yeah, like, so my piece is kind of looking at all of that kind What's of stuff. What's the Jesus cult? The Jesus cult is just his group, like the gang, the lads. Um, the disciples and stuff. Yeah, well, I they weren't a cult, like, surely. What? They weren't a cult, surely. Well, they were because the word cult you might associate now with like drinking Kool Aid and like all that kind of crack. But um, originally, the word cult was just like a group of people sort of forming a new religion kind of thing. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. Um, it's a fascinating, yeah. um, fascinating area. And how? What is? I suppose in terms of explaining to listeners is the art aspect and relating it to contemporary Ireland. Yeah. So um, there's a kind of a, there's an installation element of it, which is like a big piece of, of uh, rose quartz. Um, And the inspiration behind that was that I discovered, I was like sitting with my husband in the middle of 2020 on our house in this year. And we were watching this film um, or not a film, sorry, a TV show. Uh, like a BBC religious documentary yeah. um, about crystals and all different types of spirituality. And there was a young woman, like a TikTok influencer, and she had a piece of rose quartz crystal. Yeah. And she was like, this crystal contains Mary Magdalene's essence, which I thought was like interesting and kind of funny at the same time. Because I was like, and did it? 
who knows? She thinks it does. That's her belief. Okay. Um, and I just kind of got interested in all these people using crystals for healing in parallel yeah. to the massive crystal meth epidemic that we have. And like that people who use crystals, you know, like rose quartz or whatever, aren't criminalized. But people who use kind of other forms of crystals, like crystallized cocaine or whatever are. And um, so part of the film is the in the narrative, an artist goes around and puts big lumps of rose quartz crystal all around Tala as a kind of an art intervention kind of a thing. Um, Because that's something that I pictured doing. Like I kind of thought maybe I'll just do that because I had four years to think about like what would I do with this uh, commission. And then alongside that... So you brought lumps of rose crystal around Tala? Well, we didn't actually, but we talked about doing it. Um, And I I thought about doing it a lot um, and then discovered that it would be unethical because to actually procure that amount of crystal and it would be a huge thing in terms of like paying for it and ethically the planet the transport all that Um, and also crystal is mined by you know poor people in Madagascar and all sorts of places where they're exploited as is cocaine so like all these kinds of crystals have exploitation at the the root of them. So that was kind of, rather than actually do that intervention, I made a film about what would happen if someone did it, you know? Um, and I guess the film is about all sorts of different threads of like the Mary Magdalene story, I guess. So like one of the stories is like, you know, Rose Quartz contains her essence, you know? And then um, obviously I wanted to tackle the piece around like, was she a sex worker? And mm. um, so we had like, so the story is really, it's it's Tina's story. So she's, a young woman who was invited to a hotel room by a TD called John Brophy. And he's asked her to come there and perform a Mary Magdalene experience. Okay. So experiences are things you can order on escorts websites. You can order like a girlfriend experience, a mother experience, all this kind of thing. But he's asked for a Mary Magdalene experience. Okay. And she attempts as best she can to perform it. Right. And, um, so she researches, she learns the gospel of Mary Magdalene off by heart. She makes her own costumes. She gets really into character. Um, and then his mother interrupts them in the hotel room. He gets caught rapid. Um, and then on top of that, he gets uh, me too'd on the internet during one of these experiences. So, yeah, that's kind of what the film is about. He's then invited to do to be part of a durational performance artwork where he's going to be crucified by an artist as a way of redeeming himself for what he's done. And he bizarrely agrees to do that because he feels like he's already dead because essentially he's been cancelled. And then this goes on for three days in a gallery. Wow. That sounds really interesting. Then I had four years to work on it. Like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fascinating. Definitely. So when, um, when and where can people see it? So it's on at the moment in the Rural Red Gallery in Tala um, and it's free to go in and watch. And basically it's every 44 minutes between kind of 10 and 6. Sometimes it's later if you look online, sometimes they say it later. And yeah, you go in and you can. there's an installation part where you can read the Gospel of Mary. So the whole Gospel is there and you can just sit there and read it. And then there's a big rose quartz installation kind of sculpture that you can engage with and Maybe Mary Magdalene's in there. Who knows? She might be in it. Good. Very good. Very good. (laughs) And that's running until January, isn't it? 
it's actually running until February. So oh, it's February, February. Houses February. on the third of February, but we're going to do a lot more in the new year. We'll be doing more screenings and like, like you can go and watch it anytime, but we'll do more organized screenings mm. and some, some kind of post-show discussions and get into some of the topics around it as well, like around the kind of cancellation piece and women in film and various different kind of cool events. Will be happening excellent. Well. Excellent. Sounds yeah. great. Sounds great. So listen, what brought you to Inish year? Um, the housing crisis, <laughs> um, in short, but actually it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. We love it. Like my husband is from there and we're so lucky he has a family home there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just like, like we kind of always felt like, will we ever move out there? And, you know, just with work for the two of us, he's an artist as well. We kind of were just like, oh no, can't leave the city. Like, but then COVID happened and stuff like that as well. So it's actually worked out all right. Like, you know, like, cause less FOMO, you know, cause everything's happening online. Like, so, um, yeah. And it's stunning. Like it's really beautiful. It's so quiet and we've got a really nice community now to some other artists have moved out and yeah, it's really nice. And did you see uh, the Banshees of uh, Inish Aaron? No, my friend worked on it. So I knew about it as it was happening, but I haven't actually got to watch it yet. That's probably well worth a watch given you're, you're where you live hear- now. Incredible, like, but just as a film, and I'm a filmmaker, I should watch it. Like, yeah, it's amazing. Me now, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, the loneliness and the isolation and the in the pursuit of art and finding art, and yeah, fascinating. Um, so you're out there and you're also um pulling together a event in the Project Arts Theater yes. on housing and protest which yeah. I'm partaking in. Yes. So I'm facilitating a couple of panel discussions for Amnesty International. Um, well, they're not panel discussions, they're like public meetings. Um, mm. And yeah, there's a good few on. So there's one around the art of protest and the protest of art, um, where we're going to have Keen O'Brien and Andrea Horan kind of reflecting on the Macer mural during Repeal the Eighth and kind of everything that happened around that. Yeah. Then we have... Um, I'm everyone's favourite, John Bissett. I'm sure you know John well. Absolutely. Um, so John Bissett and um, <clears throat> Brian Fleming are going to be chatting about the spectacle of Defiance and Hope, which I think was like a really important artistic mm. movement. Um, and it, so for people who don't know, it was kind of, it kind of came about as kind of anti-austerity response, community and youth groups in 2010. And we, I was there was, in the very first meetings so in the rooms. So, Oh, amazing. Well, yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, stake your claim. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was there even before it was Spectacle of Defiance. We were calling it something else. Mm, what were we calling it? I remember it was in Do- when I was working in Dolphin's Barn. We were meeting in Rialto. What did you um, do in Dolphin again? It was something pre austerity. It was when the first, very first austerity cuts started and we started the protest. What was your job there again? I was a regeneration worker. Oh yeah, amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah, in the Dolph- with the Dolphin House Community Development Association. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that I never met you in that context, isn't it? Because I was doing the the work around heroin with the at the same time in the Rialto Community Drug Team just across the way. Yeah, we were very siloed in Dolphin House. <laughs> <laughs> we were working in the port. No, we were actually working. We were working the porta cabins, then the porta cabins got burnt out, and we went into one of the flats. Um. And for a period, and that was when 2009 and 10, the crash 
was had devastated the regeneration plans and yeah it felt a bit like a war zone there was huge anti-social yeah. going on and we were dealing with a lot of that stuff so yeah it would have been yeah. yeah i remember that it did feel like a war zone i grew up like literally five doors down down from the drug team in Rialto. that's where i grew up very good very good yeah no so i, I stayed working there till 2013 so i was working six oh, or seven no. years in dolphin house Mad. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's weird that I met you in this context and not in that context. But anyway, so um, John and Brian are going to be reflecting on the spectacle, which was a massive collective effort, as Rita Fagan has been saying. Um, yeah, it was a massive thing and loads of different people came together, including your host, Rory Hearn, um, and put together this amazing response, which went on for like at least five years. And then there was also other iterations in terms of protest songs and... Um, stuff that happened in Project Art Centre as well. And it was a really formative experience for me kind of being involved in it early on as well. I think I got involved in some of the organising meetings then for the ones around 2013, 2014 mm. um, in Liberty Hall. But yeah, I just thought artistically it was really, really It amazing. was amazing. I always remember the yeah. big uh, the big skull head. Yes. You know, as part of the anti-austerity protests and um, the coffins. And of course, the first coffins were brought out if I remember correctly, when we were part of campaigning as part of Tenants First against the collapse of the regeneration plans in relation to St. Michael's Estate and the public-private yeah. partnerships, which would yeah. have been 2009. Yeah, the City Hall kind of stuff. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's interesting. That that probably will form part of the discussion, I guess, as well. Like, you know, because so much, so much artwork has been made around, like, mm. St. Michael's Estate and stuff. In my own play history, like, I did a piece public art commission that was around all those PPP kind of projects closing or falling through and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Then we're doing a talk on the Wednesday, which is about the right to housing, which uh, this is a podcast that's about, um, you know, hope and solutions. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's something that I feel quite hopeful about at the moment. Um, the kind of opportunity that this generation or this group of people kind of agitating on this issue where people just living in this country, like have an opportunity to have a public conversation about housing and what we actually think it should be. Um, and so, yeah, we have a brilliant panel. Your host is going to be on it. Um, Rory Hearn. Then we have Claire Dunn. Um, we have the people from Housing Action Now who put together an amazing film called The Apology with Phelan Cannon and Fiona Whelan. That's right. Um, and we have people from Massey so I, I, Lucky or Donna are going to speak just in terms of like Massey's work next year is going to be a lot focused on housing and kind of I suppose how can we bring all these things together like direct provision housing all of these Massey things, is just you know? for our listeners who might know is the movement yeah, sorry. Seekers in Ireland yeah yeah and then we have a speaker from the Irish Traveller movement as well and of course Traveller issues are kind of siloed, siloed sometimes as well but I guess the focus is like how can we bring all this together? Because we also have the Union of Students in Ireland speaking as well. So students are experiencing the crisis like everybody as well, but in bespoke in different ways. And um, Louise Bayliss is going to speak from Focus Ireland. And then we have a number of other people that haven't necessarily confirmed, but will be there. Then there's Avril Karoon, who's a visual artist, who's an amazing project, which I think you love, Rory, where it's like she's gathering damp from housing. So actual damp, like she's yeah. asking giving people dehumidifiers yeah he's going to collect all the water from the damp in a massive tank in project art center 
over wow. a period of time. Yeah. So she's going to launch her project on the night that we do the public meeting, which would be great. That's amazing. It uh, reminds me of the work I was doing in Dolphin House was specifically around dampness and mold. And when yeah. we did that was 2010, 2011, around collecting the microbes from the mold. And are we uh, still recording if Tony's gone? Yeah, Tony's oh, gone, yeah, but he's he's <laughs> still there always. Tony is like a specter. He sits there <laughs> forever there. Even if we can't see him, he's there. Watching over. I feel us. like that in my life, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do you notice uh, his long hair? Speaking of Jesus's cults, I spoke to him about it. I spoke yeah. to him about it. Had a chat. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder think it's if cool. he's having I think his it's Jesus cool. moment. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's cool. I mean, we all have. Let's actually talk about that for a second. But we have to come back to the amnesty thing and finish it <laughs> off. All the myriad things that are happening because there's loads more things I haven't even mentioned. Um. But when you said that's his Jesus moment, like the film, um, that I done a Mary Magdalene experience one of the big things that I was covering in it with the TD character um, was that he had developed a bit of a Jesus complex so yeah. I I was going to have like a Fina Gaylor you know as the TD or whatever Yeah. and then I thought like that's just too easy for me as the little working class artist to just keep taking shots off them like I mm. you know I pretty much impersonated Leo Bradker in most of my theatre work like I used to do little impressions of him and everything they're actually very good Could you um, do one now? Oh let me just see can I remember God, you can't say something like this and then not yeah, do no, it. Yeah, no, I can do it. If I can remember what the actual quote is, then I can do it. Because it has to be the exact quote. Otherwise, okay. it's... Um, I mean, yes, we accept that there are situations in life beyond one's control. But at the same time, we have choices and free will. And we can't forget that as well. Great. The What's hand the gestures that make it. The... Huh? The hand gestures that make it. It is like, the hand, hand gestures. gestures yeah, really I good. can see that. It's yeah. from a piece, a performance piece called We Don't Know What's Buried Here, which I made in 2018. And um, myself and Gary Gannon were having a conversation about the Magdalene Laundry and Sean McDermott Street. Yeah. And he said to me, like, you know, it can't be demolished. And I was like, of course not. And he was like, yeah, but like, we don't know what's buried here. And I just got this bang of artistic inspiration because I was like, that's literally true. Like, we don't know what's buried. Mm. There could be the same problems that we've had in, in Tume or the same yeah. discoveries. Um, but equally, like, in this country, we don't know what's what's buried, you know? Um, so, yeah, that's what it was about. Very and good. then it, it was this, this kind of way it took form was that myself and another actor were, like, digging a hole on stage looking for our baby's bodies. Like, we were playing Magdalene ghosts. And yeah. I would have worked with women who survived the mother and baby homes and the Magdalene laundries and some of their children as well um, in putting together the piece. But we digress. Yeah. We digress. We digress. We, we, we will probably suffer that throughout this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's something... The huh? complex thing, I think it's just, it's it's an interesting thing in terms of like cancellation and stuff. And like one of the lines that I came up with for the film was like, if you keep acting like a saviour, eventually you're going to get crucified. You're going to get crucified. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I t- it's it's because he's not like a, a Fina Gaylor. He's not a bad guy. He's like, mm. he's, he's a really good kind of uh, community activist and he cares. But like... I just think there's this piece around, like when I was researching it, there's so many people, like there's a politician in the, in Wales and different kind of experiences where someone kind of becomes really, you know, involved in saving people. 
Mm. and the psychological impact that that can have. And I think that's something that, yeah, I just think that's really, really interesting. I, I experienced that myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, all right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no connection whatsoever to anything I do anyway in that. Well, if it's making you have that thought, let's have that conversation. <laughs> that's why I said it in that way. <laughs> for me, it was like, I can only speak from my own experience of it, but you know, the work you I did. You're trying to say something, Grace, are you? I'm talking about myself. Like, I mean, everything, everything in my work is about me. Like, do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. I, you know, I would have had that experience with activism, certainly like, and particularly around the work I did around the gate where I suddenly thought I was going to be able to solve, you know, abuse of power in Ireland. I didn't even, yeah. I wasn't even focused on the arts. Like I was focused on the whole, the whole country and potentially the whole world. Like, yeah. Um, Just explain uh, to listeners who might know what that was. So I wrote. I'm going this, to see. I'm counting now the number of digressions we make. And we keep <laughs> like going ridiculous. on a tangent and end up somewhere like so like, wild and wonderful. Like this is that, your yeah. life, but I'm kind of leading it, haven't I? Like I'm kind of bringing the tangent. Ah, no, no, we're both at it. It's all right. We're both at it. Okay, okay, good. Yeah. Now, um, it was basically a piece that I that I wrote for my blog, um, about an encounter that I had with Michael Colgan. And it really, like, went, you know, as they say, viral. Like, it yeah. took off like straight yeah. away as soon as I posted it. And I think because I was naming something that had happened, like, just an experience that I had that was witnessed by loads of other people, like 30 people. And it wasn't, like, I always get in trouble for kind of doing it down. But I will say, because it feels authentic to me, that, like, it wasn't nearly as bad as other experiences that other people had that came out later mm. was really unprofessional he, he made like really inappropriate kind of sexual comments towards yeah. me and also really like just disgusting rude kind of stuff yeah and I just felt I had to challenge him on it and we ended up having a big argument because he'd been doing it for years and then it was like I kicked the hornet's nest like as soon as I wrote that loads of other people came out and started to share their experiences, not just with him, but with like loads of different kind of public figures, you know? And it it just really took a toll on me. Like, you know, like I kind of, um, I didn't have, like, it went on until about 2019, to be honest with you. So it started yeah. in 2017 and I didn't have a minute without someone messaging me their experience. And my thing was like, okay, well, what can we do about this? Can you make a complaint to a board? Can you take this to the guards? Can you like, yeah. you know, all the different things. And I got loads of advice and, and stuff from therapists and lawyers. And I had a big group of people working with me. And, you know, I, I had a lot of support in it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I suppose a lot of the people didn't necessarily want to go any further with it. They just wanted to tell me, you know, and that was good like that was what they that was what they chose and that was what they mm. wanted to do but my head got into the whole thing of like oh my god I can't I can't fix this I can't save everything yeah and trying to do it is actually making me really unwell you know mm. so like I yeah I think that's why I was reflecting on the whole J Jesus savior kind of piece when mm. I was writing this film like you know it's like like even the the main character Tina in it, like at a certain point she says, like you know, I, I'm trying not to play Jesus, like, but I will yeah. share an experience, you know, because that's something I'm really mindful of now when I go into making work, like, because it's like I don't want to present a lot of work that's like, here's the thing that's going to save everybody, you know, like that's kind of that moment is kind of over for me, like you know, it's an not really like I still have that fire in my belly, you know, that kind of way, yeah. but I'm mindful yeah. of it. Like, 
yeah yeah no it's really interesting because you know in terms of what you know i'm doing and others are doing around you know any social issue and you know but i think if you know it makes me reflect immediately on myself in terms of you know people are contacting me every day with their housing issues and their mm -hmm. housing stories and their housing trauma um and i you know you know, what's the biggest motivation which drives you it's your feel you can try and help and you can try and change it and you can mm. try and um you know of course in in there somewhere is the savior concept and the savior um somehow you can play a central role in getting people out of those situations and um mm. it is important to acknowledge that that then does things to you in terms of as you say you can you know, and, and you know, it has like, there's no doubt the, the stories that I've gone through and trying to put them out there and trying to put it across and get in the yeah. arguments. Of course, it comes at a toll to your own mental health and your own well-being. Um, it's trauma. And, like it's, it's, you're absorbing a lot of trauma and it's various yeah. and it's other people's trauma. So I think what was challenging for me about it was like, obviously there's, you know, I don't want to come across as if I'm saying it's an ego thing with the savior thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, mm. like, I think it is just a, but we all have an ego. Jesus, was genuine, but he definitely, you know, got a lot of credit for what he did. <laughs> like uh, probably a lot misplaced as well. Maybe like, and maybe he was a Michael Colgan figure. Do you know what I mean? We don't know. Yeah. Like that's but, kind of what I was like, what I was thinking about because Michael Colgan also was a savior. You know, like yeah. he he did it. See, I, I think, work, and he was a brilliant producer. But I think yeah. for me, my experience of it when I was in the moment talking to women. I didn't have that kind of sense of like, this is about me or this is my ego, but yeah. I was swallowing and absorbing everything they were saying. When I was engaged with the media or with yeah. stakeholders or with like, you know, the, the arts council or the department or anything like that. Yeah. Then my ego would come into it because I would be like, I have all these people behind me. Yeah. They all need help and I need to help them. And you are in my way. Yeah. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. So like Absolutely. that was the difference. Like, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of parallels with what I'm at. <laughs> I see a lot of people <laughs> standing in our way our collective way um yeah. and take them on and i i kind of would say that i think the ego is an interesting thing and and because there are we are all both inherently selfish and inherently um um altruistic you know society orientated cooperative orientated because i think as human beings our very nature is uh Intangible is is a interconnectedness of both those things, and the neoliberal mm -hmm. philosophy and outlook on on human beings is that actually the selfish one is the ego is the one that dominates, and that is the one that is the right thing. You should look after yourself. Whereas yeah. if you take a, a a view of the ego and and of what you might call acts for yourself or things for yourself as not being disconnected from others. Mm -hmm. then it's actually part of good. of good exactly mm -hmm. and, and that's the way i see it but it is about understanding and thinking about you know challenging that you know at times is it about your ego and how much is it about yourself versus how much is it about what you're actually trying to change and others and and supporting yeah. and working with them and and seeing I that i agree with all that but i think i think for me i think neoliberalism is a religion like I don't think it's an ideology or a set of like you know a set of economic values or whatever you want to call it. Like what would it academically be called? Like what is it? An ideology, yeah. An ideology, no. Yeah, I don't or an economic so. philosophy. I think it's evolved beyond or that. Economic it's policy. It's a religion, I think. Yeah. Because it's based on belief. So, like, 
I'm just so like I, you know, I sent you that piece history to have a look at or whatever. Like, and I was thinking about just as as every time I watch things, or even I said to you guys before we started this that I didn't feel I could watch the speeches on the march. Yeah, on Saturday, like I just feel like I've heard this stuff over and over and over again, and like all the stuff that we're saying, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's all true. It's not actually. It's it's no longer something that needs to be said above the fray. Do you know that kind of way? It's like the mainstream people get it. Like they understand all the solutions and stuff. But it's just not making any traction in that world because neoliberalism is the belief that the market will take care of everyone, despite the fact that it never has. So like that's like the belief that Jesus is coming back and he's going to help us all, even though he never has, or the belief that you know, you'll go to hell, even though you don't, you know, evidence of that. So like, there's no, there. It, it's, it's a complete like belief mindset thing now. And they're dug in. And like, you know, I remember when all this kind of started, as we've just been talking about with the McNamara stuff, like in, in 2008, like that was a, at that point, it was a proposal, you know, and there was people like John Bissett saying, this isn't going to work and Rita Fagan and everyone, you know, in the other communities that I don't know that were involved in it as well. Um, but, it then it failed and that should have been like okay you know so the, the ppp thing was the idea that the market could provide mm, public housing yeah. right so that's the basic thing yeah and that completely failed because of the world economy or whatever because the fictitious thing of capitalism was adhered to um and it failed and even though it failed they they kept doing it and they keep talking about it and even Sinn Féin are starting to speak that language as if they've gone to that church like they're saying stuff like the state should provide a role in the provision of public health you know what I mean like it's kind of everyone is distancing and it's that's why I think it's really interesting that we have an opportunity to have a a national conversation about this if there is a referendum called because I think it needs to be like I think it will be like you know repeal and and um, marriage equality and stuff like that but I think it's going to be much much more telling and and it will excavate a lot of like values that exist in this country around property, wealth, and who gets to own things. And essentially, I think the housing crisis is the result of the belief of a lot of voters that like poor people don't deserve things for free, you know, Um, and that the state can't be handing out stuff and that when they did, everyone took drugs and wrecked the flat. So we had to knock them all down. Um, But we basically didn't build as many as we knocked down. And that's why a lot of people sleep rough, you know. So, yeah. yeah, that's my little take on it. That's my hot take. Yeah, and it's backed up by a lot of evidence mm. and years of Unlike research. <laughs> no, the uh, the take of um, that neoliberalism is a, a belief system and a, a religion rather than an evidence-based, uh, coherent policy platform. Um, and it's interesting what you say, because, you know, there's a load there again we could go into but you know i feel you know i did my phd um back in 2009 and the the phd title was the neoliberalization of the welfare state and inequality and one of my key case studies was the regeneration of the social housing estates mm. um and that's where i was working in which there. ones were you taken in at that point so it was Dolphin House, Michaels, Teresa's Gardens, Devony Gardens, the seven or eight estates in Dublin. Um, I think I got yeah. to 12, 12 at one point. Um, and, you know, I published a book then in 2011 on that. 
um, showing again that that showed absolutely the market didn't work in housing, didn't work in social mm. housing. Um, and then, you know, you go on about, you know, I was have been and others since 2014 highlighting that the market wasn't going to solve um, this crisis and how the NAMA and all that what was doing. And, you know, you, you said you turned away from the protest because they've heard this. And I kind of react against that and go, mm. I have been felt in every single conversation I have had it, since, um, I don't know, probably 2016 that I so for eight for six years, I've been just repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah, trying to think, crazy, trying to think different ways I can say the same thing so that yeah. it will connect with people. So to that who? people, huh? To who and why? To who? To the public. Because you yeah. see, it is, you say, yeah, people know this. They know it, but they're they not really hearing now, it. Though. I'm not saying they've known it all that time. I think it's just become. I think it's right. It's risen above the fray. Like I think these ideas used to be niche to like you and you know people that I would know. And I was trying to like get yeah. them out there. And I just think my my mood temperature of the room is that people are people know now. Yeah. No. I I think I would say to a certain extent a lot more people do. Yeah. But there's still a, a lot, lot more, more. Yeah. Yeah. We have to connect with, and we have to repeat the same things that we've and repeated. Well, I think we have to deprogram those people. <laughs> To be honest with nope. you, I, I think that the it is deprogramming, whatever way you want to put it. But I do they're think in cults, like that's what I'm saying. They're in the neo. We need to connect with them, and we need to show that 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 you know that that they know the system isn't working, and they are their eyes have been opened now, and they are yeah. open to new ways of thinking, and that is but absolutely where you know I make the point in the book. I write this explicitly yeah. in graphs about, and have been making this point really, you know, for a number of years probably well really concretely i would say the last year but in the book i write about it that we do need to create a housing movement mm -hmm. that has the values and approach of repeal and marriage equality that isn't about housing statistics it isn't about you know uh bashing each other other over the head it is about love and it puts love back into the heart of it. and what the hell does that mean in housing mm. what that means is home and mm. people having a place of dignity and a place that's affordable that doesn't turn them put them into poverty or mental distress and that they can have their own home in the multiple mm -hmm. forms that is and ultimately that is the state playing a core role in delivering housing of all forms mm. but it is about changing the value of property and how we see property and how property was seen what um, does it mean to say they're going to play a core role what does it mean it mm. means that they should be at the moment you look at, um, for example, 10 percent of our housing is social housing. Yeah. I don't see, you know, we should be aiming towards at least a third of our housing should be public housing. Mm. Um, and the state playing a core role means, I think, things like setting up a public construction company that would. Yeah, actually I heard be, you saying that to Blind Boy. Yeah, that should be actually building homes. It means that the state is putting is spending not just double, but it should be probably we spend about four billion a year, only about less than two billion on actually probably about a billion and a half on actually building homes. The rest mm -hmm. goes a billion goes to landlords and rent subsidies and all that stuff. Uh, we should probably be spending about four to five billion a year. Yeah. And, you know, I think housing associations, the not for profit, non market sector, the Okulons, cooperatives, all mm. those need to be backed by the state and supported by the state. Um, so why why should the state not be the ones providing the housing? Why are they playing a core role? Because the 
I suppose the the question is, what are we trying to do? If you look at housing models like Vienna, um, yeah. places like Copenhagen that work much, much better, Helsinki, for example, mm. public housing in some cities is up to municipal. Now, not just public, but like it's about you know, 20, it could be up to 30% and then they have 20% not-for-profit housing, like housing associations on top of that. Mm -hmm. So non-market housing can be about half the housing in, for example, Vienna. In terms of zoning or in terms of who's building it? like. In terms of who is managing it and who owns it. Yeah, who, yeah, okay, interesting. Um, And I think we have to understand the culture. When you say 30%, is that 30% of the land use? 30% 30% of the housing stock. The housing third stock. Of the housing Who owns stock. the housing stock? It would be local authorities. It would be housing associations. That third. So mm. it's publicly owned. That's the way I would see it. So and you should have... The stock in a city is 1,000. Um, you know, what is that? that like 50, that's 300. 700 houses are privately yeah. owned. Are they privately constructed? Are they privately constructed? They, a significant amount of them would be. Yeah, I don't see. I don't and see who what, owns the land. Who owns the land? Well, the, who, owns, on. who owns the land currently? Um, well, we're, this is a, we've jumped into a kind of a fantasy game here, um, like a a, th- a thought experiment. I guess is what I'm what I'm getting at. You see, if if I was to, if you were to say, right, ideally, or what would be a good housing system? It would be one, and, and if we take into account, for example, climate, mm. and you take into account housing need and social need, issues like land ownership, control of buildings, control of derelict properties, that would all, all be decisions on that, ownership, would all be done with the needs of people and planet being put In first. Mind. Yeah, totally. Prioritized. Hmm. And the question is, how do you get to a system whereby people's housing needs are met and our climatic needs are met? Hmm. And so that it's re- as simple as, you know, I know a lot of people say this and I sometimes say it myself, like, you know, we had a good strategy in terms of how we approached housing at the foundation of the state because we built all these beautiful garden cities, you know, in Crumlin and Drimna and Ballyferma and all these places and you know, but then we also have to remember that we had Kyo Square, which is where St. Michael's Estate was, which was the debtor's prison where you were sent when you couldn't pay your rent kind of thing. And people lived in absolute abject poverty in slums and had no lights and no heat and stuff while all those other places were being built. But I think what you're saying is that it, I, I'm, I'm hearing that we can't kind of go back and say, oh, let's do what we used to do, because actually yeah. we need to have a forward thinking future solution that's based on the needs around the climate and all that kind of stuff as well which is totally but i i just really think it's about the land if i'm honest with you like i mean if you take saint michael's estate as an option like you know what would you be recommending i know this cost rental is what's been yeah agreed to but like so much stuff has been agreed to on that land but like yeah that's gonna happen i I think i would i would build public housing and let the state keep all of the land I think the state needs to keep land for housing. But yeah, but that's absolutely it should. But the state should be using all the public land it has. And it has a massive amount of land. Yeah, huge amount. Yeah. To build public housing. And that's where, in a way, the debate about the... They're not because their voters don't believe that the state should should build things for other people. 
for free essentially that's the that's the ideology that you have to kind of get around it is like that is really one that has to be to the, talk to people about it they don't believe that the state because what that means is they have to pay higher taxes they think but that's not necessarily true but that's no. the, that's the next thing that carries on you know do you want people to be homeless now would you want us to build them a house yeah okay well it's you're gonna have to pay two cent extra oh no why not but that's not but people that's not the, things for free yeah but you're right that really... <laughs> that's the thing why don't they deserve things for free well i get nothing for free and this isn't just middle class people like this yeah. this is this is people of all tribes on the, on the island yeah have these ideas yeah they no. do and it is about showing that actually it would be you'll be paying less rent and lower house prices if the yeah, state but, but can you trust that because who's going to be like no one trusts people in power anyway do you know what well, i mean well, you see, that's part of it. It is mm. part of that's the importance of social movements and of yeah. artists and of voices, you know, in academia or in civil society, you know, saying this is the way forward. Because you're right, people don't listen to politics and politicians and government, but they do listen to artists and they yeah. do listen to musicians and they do listen to influencers. That's true. I've definitely felt they listen to me over the years, you know. Yeah. Um, which has been amazing and I do feel like as an artist you can you can create framing for how you describe things with language that that can suddenly make things kind of crystallize so like the work I would have done around drug use and drug users um for years like I toured this play called heroin for about 10 years and definitely that changed things with the people who I met who were witnessing it I know mm. that much you know mm. um and absolutely you can but then but that's why I feel hopeful about this opportunity to put something in the constitution around the right to housing and it needs to be the right thing because someone on that march was saying to me like you know everyone's not going to just get a gaff because we do that like and I was like no 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 that's not the point of it though and um, you know like with referendums like we don't have abortion care that we need here at all but yeah. unfortunately a lot of people think we do because they have a jumper in their in their closet that they wore for a while and you know that's unfortunate but we have a much better situation than we did and we also have a really good framework to challenge all the issues that we have now with abortion care so we we can come back and challenge them and we can say no matter who's in government no matter what party it is even if it ends up being feckin aim to which could happen like we can we can challenge that because it's in the constitution and um, and similarly with this i think it's a it's an opportunity to have a values-led conversation because even though we don't have the right abortion care that we that we deserve we do have a fundamental values driven shift around how people are treated and um, who need to access abortion care like that has completely changed equally the our relationship to people who don't identify as heterosexual has massively shifted because we had that opportunity to have months and months and months of discussion amongst ourselves you know and i think that's where artists and academics and stuff like that can really come in and and hold those spaces for discussion. Absolutely. And I think that I completely agree. And, and again, as I say, like I actually write about this explicitly in gaffes um, yeah, in my so book around what people buy the can book. do. Huh? Buy the book. You have to buy the book. I will. Send it to me. <laughs> I deserve like a comp book. <laughs> oh, you do. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, I will. I'll buy it. I'll go and buy it. No, 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 no. Of course, I'll send you one. Of course. For coming on, for giving the time. Absolutely. Uh, I'll get Tony to buy one and send it to you. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it is exactly that about values shift. And I think that in the same way that repeal and marriage equality had to take on deeply conservative values and find out ways you could connect with the whatever the people who were potentially open to supporting it. Mm. Um, and then there was obviously certain people you're never going to convince. But I think similarly around housing that there are, as you say, you know, a lot of people who are parents who are older generations who think, oh, you know, I did whatever to get my home. And it's just, you know, it's it's, you know, they're listening to Vradker and others saying it's essentially the homeless people are young people's fault. And it's not actually the housing system and policies and our whole attitude towards housing as property and commodity. Mm. And I think that potential for a values shift is the hope, you know, yeah. and and young people leading that and not so young people leading that in terms of that whole thing of looking on our housing system as what is the purpose of it? The purpose mm -hmm. of it is to provide people a home. And yeah. that is ultimately what it has to be about. Um, but I completely agree with you that in that conversation, I think you, the, the I, I wondered that in this referendum, hopefully we will have it. But the money that is behind investment funds, landlords, developers is going to make it perhaps something even more challenging. And, and, and because it's about property and ownership and wealth, that there's going to have to be some serious messaging, thinking about, you know, how do we do this in a way that actually wins and doesn't end up losing? See, that's a really good point. And that's something that I'm feeling that I want to say, because I think like... With, say with the abortion referendum, like I do understand the sort of strategic idea of, um, you know, not like not saying something that would be deemed too radical or not losing, you know, conservative people whose ideas might be shifted in terms of your approach. Right. Yeah. So, and that was obviously successful. It was a massive landslide victory. Um, but I think that comes at a cost as well. And I think that needs to be sort of considered in how we approach this, because for me, it's like I'm I feel so strongly about this issue and I'm personally so affected by it. Like I know so many people are, but I have been my whole life. And that's why all my art is about housing in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but there's certain things that I don't feel like I want to compromise on. Do you know what I mean? When it comes to when it comes to this and I think that needs to be sort of fleshed out like for example like you know like when you say like what is the housing system for like there's lots of people who believe there shouldn't be a housing system because they believe that that housing or property is a commodity do you know that kind of way and like not everyone deserves a house and obviously that's not what you know the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says but there's lots of people who don't care about stuff like that anymore you know, like, so I think for me, it's this, the language that plays the state should play a role. The state should be a core. Like, I'm like, the state needs to provide housing because I'm like, what else is it there for? Like, if the state isn't going to do the bins or it's not going to do the buses or it's not going to do the hospitals or the schools and it, it's not going to do houses. Like, why? Why? Why do we have it? Like, for what? Like, it's not even going to do roads anymore. Like roads aren't even publicly built. Like, do you know what I mean? Tolls, like basic stuff. Like what is the point of the government then? Like, what are they going to be doing in there? Like, well, that's, you know, I'm like, it's an ide it's an ideological shift that needs to be cracked open and discussed, I think. 
Mm. I, I do think it does need to be discussed. I, I think there's broader acceptance and it has shifted very significantly, as you referred to earlier, like the stuff that I've been talking about, which nobody was really listening to or taking serious. Yeah. Um, now, I, I think most people in Ireland now, and you even hear amongst the private interests say, oh, yeah, the state has to be providing social housing now. Mm. And there's like this acceptance. And I think you know that is reflective of a values shift. And mm-hmm. it is about, you know, you say the state should be doing this. And I agree completely. So it is mm-hmm. about us. And you say, oh, what did I mean by core? And I think you have to be careful about projecting your concerns about what has happened. Because I have to do this with myself yeah. over the last 30 years into what people are saying now. And assuming mm-hmm. that when I say core, that really means, oh, that doesn't mean a role. When in actual fact, when I say the state should have a core I don't role, assume anything like you know. No, no, no. I, but I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah. I, I felt from your reaction to it, you're like, well, what do you mean by core? So you clearly. No, my going. job is to ask you. Like your job is to ask me questions. You're interviewing me, but like as an as an artist, like absolutely. No, no. I'm going to interrogate what is this language about. Like, exactly. What does this language actually mean. So like core role, like I'm like that confuses me. Do you know? Yeah. So what you what you're saying, you what I understood from what you said was like that, you know, alongside Cluid and all these other housing groups, the state should be working with them hand in hand to provide social housing. Absolutely. And and I think yeah. you know, I as I said I'd go one back, I'd go one back, they should provide the social housing. Like that's you know I no, I, I think absolutely the state should be providing social housing, without a doubt. And I you know, I've said yeah. that over and over. Sorry, now this might this might sound really annoying because I'm not a public housing or a campaigner, right? So I'm none of these things. So I just keep kind of asking questions about it. Yeah, like, go for it. Like in some parts, of it, like why is some places social housing and some places are leafy suburbs? Like I'm confused by that. Like why is there a need for social? Isn't all housing social housing? Like because it's like there's my neighbor has gone. Like what does that actually mean? Like and why is it that we have like a social mix of housing in Fatima, say, was a big deal. We had to have a social mix, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Never happened. No other mix, no one mixed in with us. So <laughs> their gaps are empty. So why is it that, like, when things are being developed in other parts of the city or other parts of the country, that they don't have to have a social mix? So what's, what is that about? Like, that's, and I don't think you have all these answers, but like, it's about how the people who live in the social housing are understood and perceived. Do you Absolutely. know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. Like, so it's like I need to have an architect living next to me so that I can one day become an architect rather than like, you know, I need to have a traditional working class role or an artist or whoever, like, you know, a plumber or a tiler like my dad, like living next to someone whose parents are both architects and they might actually want to be a tiler. So wouldn't it be but that was, that my was dad the, going in the, his tools? Absolutely. But that was the the core at the core of why we're in the crisis is because social housing or public housing was reduced in its role in Ireland since the 1980s. It was reduced in its provision. It was restricted in its eligibility. And so it was narrowed down. And they essentially undertook a process of winding down and attacking yeah. social housing. That's what they they've didn't done. didn't build for- as many flats as they knocked down. That's why people sleep rough. Like yeah. it's as simple as that. You know? so they've, they've been doing so that for 30 years comes down to the values thing that will be important for this referendum. The reason they knocked down all the flats or the the excuse they had to knock down all the flats because they wanted, as you know, I'm sure it's in all your books, they wanted like 
poor people living on rich land to fuck off. Yeah, because of course. they understood that that land was going to be really, really, you know, profitable in the new state that they were building. So they were like, oh, we don't want a load of people living in the city centre. Like, we're going to have to knock down Odebney Gardens. Do you know what yeah. I mean? We'll send all them out to Fingless and Fox Rock. We'll build them little spots, not Fox Rock, but Fingless. We'll build them little spots so they can all hang out out there away from this place where we're going to put like financial centres and other things that we're going to do out here. That was a literal, they thought about that, but the excuse that they did and they wrote about it there's loads of documents where they wrote about it this is our new approach and used terms like containerization all this stuff as if they were good things and they, they, their excuse was we took your flats because he's kept taking drugs and pissing in the stairwells and getting sick and killing yourselves and you know fucking breaking things and not painting them and you know we had to take your flats away so we're knocking it all down we're knocking the flats down so you'd all stop taking drugs, yeah. which is the maddest thing ever. And when in reality, the reason people started taking drugs and the reason all those things happened was because of like trauma that hadn't been processed at, around Dangin and Letterfrack and all these other places they sent the working class people to go where they all got abused by priests, came back to the inner city and took heroin. Like it's as simple as that. And this is going on years and years and years. And I think you have to look at the origin story. Do you know what I mean? Instead of mm-hmm. going... Like, that's where I'd be instead of going like, oh, I understand that you don't think anyone should get anything for free, like, and and you worked hard. and da, 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 da. I think it's like we need to have a, a meeting where we come together and go, this shit didn't happen to you in the same way that it happened to us, you know? And that's, but, but we still think that you deserve a house no matter what. Like, I, like, that's what I love about it. Do you know, I don't think a lawyer shouldn't have a public house. I don't think, you know, I think if you keep making it like this, social housing then it becomes always going to be a stigmatized and silent situation where people are being are dependent on the state and are being looked after there should be a housing stock of public housing to protect the human right to housing and dignity from the market forces and we have that system in lots of countries around the world like it's not but it but it is being eaten away by neoliberalism it is indeed it is indeed well listen grace (laughs) <laughs> it's been uh, great to have you, and I. Um, uh, no, no, not at all, not at all. No, no, it's at the, it's at the heart of you know. I completely agree, and um, think that you know the referendum is key, but so also is the raise the roof and those movements building that, and hopefully there will be protests again in the new year, and I think they are vital as a way to change the the thinking and and connect people who feel what we're saying, but feel that they're isolated. Um, Because I was really struck by that in in the Raise the Roof protest, the amount of people who said to me, you know, that they were coming up to Dublin or they couldn't make it, but they were really, you know, they felt not alone. And they felt that, you know, even though they might, their family mightn't agree or their people around them don't, but they felt they saw that people were standing together and they want to do this more um, and expand it. And I think that's I think we have a great conversation and project on Wednesday 7th we we absolutely will once me and you just don't start I won't be saying anything because I'm only facilitating it so <laughs> I'll just be sitting there taking down names of people who want to talk or whatever no no, um, no thank god that. you can have your say <laughs> and listen um you also have Fiona from Amnesty is going to be talking as well yes she is she's going to be talking about Amnesty's work on the right to housing and and yeah. I suppose she'll be able to give an international perspective as well yeah. on kind of like how how this has been managed in all the other kind of um, 
amnesty sections around the world. Like, so it's great that we have that kind of international perspective, but that's something we could definitely offer, you know, um, yeah. which is great. Great. And um, no, and it's important, you know, these conversations and, and linking between arts and, you know, policy and activism and thinking through how we're going to change this and how we're yeah. going to build on the the change that's happening, the hope, the value shift that's underway and how we can convert it into real substantive change. Um, and I have to say, like, I do feel very hopeful about the referendum prospect because like yourself, you know, working in this for a long time and talk, like working in public communication around it for a long time. Um, and I, I think people just need a framework to have the conversations in a real way yeah. where you can actually keep going like the way we would have done around abortion care, like that you can keep having the conversation with family members and friends and get to the, get to the values driven root of it, you know, because yeah. we haven't really ever had a conversation in this country about what our values are when it comes to housing. And I think this would be an opportunity to kind of develop collective values like on it. Yeah. Which yeah, is a no. possibility. I don't think, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think we have to be so divided on it. No, I don't think so. And I think increasingly the public is actually very um, connected and united around values and the value shift that's needed so listen we look forward to that and we look forward to winning that referendum um, next year hopefully at absolutely some point. and just for anyone who's interested um the play that i did with st michael's estate history and um, so it's about the history of st michael's estate in dublin and um, and it's it's looking at the McNamara stuff and the PPP and yeah. all that kind of fallout. So that is available as part of a, a book of plays. And um, so if people want to have a read of it, it's another little plug for me. So I can send Rory the link that people want to buy it and have a look at it. There's, there's No Escape by Mary Raffertry is in it as well. And there's lots of other really, really good um, documentary theatre kind of pieces um, that are kind of in the book. So I'll send a link. Great, great. And a reminder, the Project Arts is taking place. So it's from the 5th to the 10th of December. We're actually closing out the week with an amazing gig that Francis Black is going to be hosting of Palestinian musicians kind of living in Ireland. And it's called Songs Against Apartheid. So that should be great crack. We have a climate action public meeting as well on the 8th. And then we have the art talk that I mentioned already. And then the, the right to housing public conversation with Rory, which I think we should all use as a way to debate all these discussions more and get a kind of a buzz going for what kind of campaign we could have. Um, so that's on the Wednesday and all the information is on projectartcenter.ie. You can book tickets there. The public meetings are all free. The gig is 20 euro and the money goes to our work on our Amnesty International's work on uh, anti-apartheid in Palestine. Very good. Listen, excellent. Um, and so that is Wednesday the 7th at half six um, yes. is the right to housing one. Yes. Listen, Grace, thanks so much for coming on and um, having the, the the chats and the crack and the wind up and the whole lot. <laughs> I hope I didn't wind up now. I sure. Why, what else is, would you do? <laughs> well, if I did, that's all you. That wasn't my intention. I'm just exactly. It's all it, it's all in my own head. Listen, <laughs> enjoy in this year. I will. Very good. Um, Grace Dias there, really, um, really, really interesting conversation and so important as we look forward to hopefully a referendum on the right to housing next year. Um, you can listen back. We've had some great guests over the last while, Liam Cunningham, um, amongst others in terms of discussing, I suppose, many things around housing and 
uh, change. And also a uh, reminder, of course, you can get my book gaffes as well if you're looking to read about this. Um, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. 